All right. So this morning, I'm taking the opportunity uh, to go back to a message that I preached. Um, I haven't preached this message in quite a long time. I think it's been since 2015. And uh, this question comes up often uh, in pastoral ministry. And I tell young, the, the interns that come through when they start talking about being a pastor and what, what, do you, you know, what are things that you come across that are difficult. And um, uh, without question, it's difficult when uh, a young one dies. Uh, when there's a miscarriage or when an, an infant passes, uh, it's, it's very difficult. And um, I can remember when my wife and I uh, had our first child and there was a membership class uh, you know, for us to join the church, I, I asked the pastor, I looked in the eye, I said, so what would happen if, if our little one would pass? And his response was, well, you know, God is just, you know, he's a good God. And I'm like, well, I appreciate that. And I kind of took that. Um, and I believe that with all my heart. Uh, but, but I do think that Scripture gives us guidance in this. Now, is there a, a, a verse that says, this is what happens to an infant when they die? There's not a, a verse that says that. But I think, you know, just like we um, cling to the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Is there one verse, you know, that says, you know, God exists, one essence, three persons? Well, no, there's not. Um, but we cling to that truth because the whole counsel of God tells us clearly uh, that that is the case. So as we look at what happens to an infant, I think Scripture gives us a high degree of confidence uh, that, that when an infant passes, uh, they are blessed forever in heaven at their death. Um, and so this is the point. I'm not going to do an inductive message making you wonder where I land on this. Uh, any person who dies in a state of experiential innocence infant or otherwise, we will be in heaven, blessed forever in their death. So I want to start with an illustration that kind of leads us into the importance of, of knowing and understanding um, what happens to an infant when they die, right? Because even if you're not a pastor, you deal with people who are going to lose a little one or maybe have a miscarriage. And, and you really want to be able to give more hope than, well, God is good and kind. And that's true, okay? That is true. But I think we, we want to be able to speak truth. We want to be people of truth. Uh, one, of this, one of the books I was reading as I studied this gives this story. Lily was shocked that her friends might think... Oops, let me back up here a little bit. I've got it flipped. Lily awoke earlier than usual that morning. And her first thought was to go to the cradle, the cradle of her child. She had given birth to a baby, Eunice, three days earlier. And Lily had a sense of satisfaction at having a daughter to join her two rambunctious sons. From the beginning, however, little Eunice had been a little bit listless and pale. Unlike her brothers after their births, she seemed to shiver frequently as if cold deeply on the inside. Although Lily and the midwife who attended her could detect no fever, because of their concern she might be cold, they kept her cradle close to the fire. Lily's immediate concern as she entered the living room that morning was that the fire had gone out. Not even a red glow had come from the coals. She immediately rushed to the cradle to lift Eunice from it, feeling an overwhelming maternal instinct to cover her with her own warmth. To her horror, the baby was stiff and lifeless. Sometime between Lily's checking on her baby at 1 o'clock in the morning and coming in to her at 5 o'clock, Eunice had died. Lily's mournful wail awake, awoke her husband and her son. She could not be consoled, and for hours she refused to release Eunice from her arms as she rocked back and forth, sobbing loudly. Finally, her husband, Marvin, said to the boys, we need to let your mother be alone for a while. 
the three of them stoked the fire in the fireplace, closed the door to the living room, and left Lily to mourn until she had cried all her tears she could cry. She eventually slumped over into a deep sleep, and it was then that Marvin was able to take the baby from her arms and call the preacher and the local doctor. A simple graveside service was held in the cold afternoon of the next day. The preacher said a few words as the little casket was loaded into the ground, and the family went home to the silence of a house that was normally filled with laughter and warmth and the aroma of Lily's nearly constant cooking of soups and stews. Word soon circulated throughout the rural community that Lily had given birth and that the baby had lived only three days. The vast majority of friends and neighbors learned of the loss only after Eunice had been buried. Very few ever mentioned the birth of the baby to Marvin or Lily. Only one boy came to their sons at school and said, I heard about your sister, and I'm sorry that happened. Only a handful of their friends and fellow church members came to call on Lily and Marvin at their home. The wife of one couple that came to call on Lily said, It was for the best, dear. It's best to forget this ever happened. We don't ever need to talk about it again. Lily could not imagine how she could ever forget. And why should she never want to talk about her daughter again? Eunice had lived inside her for nine months, if only outside her womb for three days. She was a person and a member of her family, and Lily believed her baby should be mentioned by those who loved her. Another woman said to her, it's too bad you let the fire go out. Lily was shocked that her friends might think that she had killed her own daughter through neglect. It hadn't even dawned on her until the moment, that moment to consider that her baby had died because she had failed to keep awake and to keep logs on the fire. The worst thing Lily heard in the aftermath of her daughter's death, however, was something she overheard a woman say to Marvin. God must not have wanted Lily to have a daughter. Lily was crushed to the core of her soul. What kind of God would be so cruel as to entrust Lily with a pregnancy, but then think her so unfit as a mother that he would immediately take this child that she bore? In many ways, Lily never recovered from the birth and death of her little girl. There was no explanation for her baby's sickness or death. Her birth occurred in the first part of the 20th century, and no one had yet heard the expression sudden infant death syndrome. Lily, who had once been known throughout the area as a vivacious, fun-loving, spirited woman, became quiet and withdrawn, perpetually sad. Without the resources and counseling readily available today, Lily remained depressed for several years. One night, without her husband knowing it, she left the house and took a long walk into a snowstorm. The cold she developed turned into pneumonia, and with no sign at all, uh, with no sign at all that she had a will to live, Lily died two weeks later at home, just a few, few feet away from the empty cradle this still occupied its place before the fireplace. Lily's story is repeated countless times around the world every day. Babies are born and babies fail to thrive. Babies die a few days or a few hours later. In some cases, the cause of death is unknown. In thousands more the cases of cases around the world, the cause is never known. Parents have very intense reactions to the death of a child. They need answers. They need truth. It's a, it's a, I was, there's multiple stories as I was reading. I, I was just crying. I called Kristen. And said, she's like, are you okay? I'm, I'm crying. I can't handle this anymore. This is, this is very sad. But as I was reading the book, I'm like, the idea of this book is to give hope. It's to give joy. It's to give, you know, the thought that, that everything's going to be okay. And so this morning, what I want to do is to just go through some, some truths that I think will help us better address this issue as, you know, personally, 
if it happens in your own life, in the life of your family, or if you're dealing with a friend or a neighbor or another church member, you know, how do we walk through this with truth? And so the point here is that if any person dies in a state of experiential innocence, and I'll get to that, infant or otherwise, they will be in heaven blessed forever in their death. Right? Being in heaven is infinitely better than ever being on the face of the earth. But we have to work through truths that give us hope. And so the first point, and I'm going to run through this quickly for the sake of time, is that God is sovereign, right? We preach this very consistently in our church, that God is a sovereign God. He controls all things for his purposes. All things for his purposes, right? If you look at this passage in Daniel, I'm not going to read every passage because for the sake of time, I'm going to keep moving forward. But in this passage, God controls all the events of human history, all the nations around the world. Nothing is happening apart from the will of God. So he controls the big things, and he's, he's definitely concerned with your own life. He knows the number of hairs on your head, even caring about the sparrows, right? If you read Psalm 104, not one animal draws the breath of life apart from God's sovereignty, They feed from the gracious, sovereign hand of our Lord God. He says, you're much more valuable than the sparrows that God knows about when they fall to the earth. So God is sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over you and your life down to the most minute detail. And more importantly, he's sovereign over your salvation. Very familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 1. In him we were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his own purpose and his own will. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. I'm not diminishing free will here. I'm not diminishing your responsibility. How your responsibility and your will interacts with the sovereign decree and control of God, that's up to God. That's bigger than me. I have to submit to what the truths of the scriptures say. But God is in control. He is sovereign. He controls birth. Right? We read in Scripture, this interesting uh, section here in Genesis, Jacob's wives, right? They couldn't conceive and then they could conceive. What happened? Well, God opened up the womb. He can open the womb. He can close the womb. Genesis 29, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. Literally, he opened her womb in in the original text. But Rachel remained childless. Well, he didn't forget about Rachel, right? He remembered her, and then he enabled her to conceive, right? We know through Scripture there there are times when there are women who cannot, they they don't give birth for whatever reason. But God then, late in life, opens up their womb. God closes the womb. God opens the womb. He is sovereign. He is in control. So he gives life, and he controls death. We're familiar with this. A person's days are determined, right? We, we read this in Psalm 139. The number of days that we have are determined by God can add one millisecond to your life. Does that mean we live fatalistic and throw caution to the wind? No, that's stupidity. That's, that's foolishness. But little Eunice's life in that story was ordained by God. She was no less a person in the womb than you are sitting here in this room. Her days were numbered. A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits that he cannot exceed. And right as we share the gospel, we make this point clear to people. Just as people are destined once to die, and after that comes 
the judgment. So, so God is sovereign over all things. He controls life. He controls death. He controls salvation. Not one person is, comes to Christ apart from God's sovereign hand drawing them to Christ. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on that last day. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored that the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. God is completely sovereign in control over salvation. And again, Ephesians chapter 1. The second main point. God is sovereign. He controls all things. And this is important because if somehow salvation escapes the sovereign control of God, then, then our hope for the destiny of a baby can come into question. The second main point is that children are a gift of the Lord. All right? I don't need to spend a long time here. Children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a gift from God. Psalm 139, we read this earlier. Actually, it's not on here. Okay, but I have it in the next point. Children are a gift. Life begins at conception. Okay, this is an important point that we bring up often in our fight against abortion. That, that, that life is not once the person comes out of the womb. Life begins at the moment of conception. Friends, you can't, you can't alter that. You can't somehow say it's when they start feeling pain or when you see the heartbeat. No, life begins at conception. And we read about this in Psalm 139. So, so we have these beautiful children that are given to us as a gift from the Lord. He sovereignly has ordained that this child would be brought into our family. He's ordained the length of their days. He's ordained all their steps, okay? But this child that we're holding, Scripture tells us, was born a sinner. They have what we call Adamic guilt, right? Adam, the first man, sinned, and through him sin came into the world. And all men sin because Adam sinned. This is something we have to overcome. Now, there's this guy named Pelagius. He was a heretic, okay? But Pelagius, and really, honestly, he, was, he started like with, a, with a good reason, right? People were saying, you know, I can't help it. It's just my human nature, right? I, I'm just like, you know, it's just who I am. That's why I can't overcome this sin. And Pelagius was like, look, you, you can't use that as an excuse, right? And so one of his theories behind that was, no, you were born without sin, and, and you just sin, and you, because you sinned, you became a sinner. Pelagius would say, you know, you're not that bad. You really think you inherited your parents' sinful nature? Right? He thought that Adam's sin stuck with him. Every other child is born with a blank slate, if you will. This was heresy. It was thoroughly condemned by the church and two councils. Because Scripture clearly speaks against this. Again, I started quoting from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. We call this Adamic guilt. It's imputed guilt. It's credited guilt. It's a problem. We know from other places in Scripture. Psalm 51 is very familiar. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. The act of conception, intimacy between a man and woman is not, you know, husband and wife. It's not sinful, okay? It's the right way, right? Circumstances. 
He's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that, that the union of, of a man and a woman and the egg, everything, when it comes together, that, okay, as soon as this child is formed, this, the sin nature is inherited. The, the guilt is given to them. It's imputed to them. And so every child comes into the world a sinner. Like we, we don't, We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's just who we are. It's, it's because of, of Adam's sin. Scripture is clear on that. Right? If, if you were to you know, take a group of children okay, and isolate them from every external, uh, you know, you know, somehow you could feed them and nurture them and not have any people around to influence them, guess what? They're going to start doing bad stuff because by nature they're sinful. And we know in Romans chapter 3, as Paul continues his argument, there's no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands God, no one who seeks after God, I'm sorry. All have turned away, they have altogether become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And here's the problem. Besides the fact that everyone that's born is a sinner, the wages of sin is what? It's death. The wages of sin is death. Without sin in the world, nobody would ever die. So if a child is born and somehow they die, that means that sin is a part of the equation because the wages of sin is death. And then the problem increases because after death, the judgment occurs. There's no second chance. There is heretical teaching there's some groups that would say that, you know, after you die, there's a second chance that you'll hear the gospel again after death. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. And so this child, this beautiful child that comes into the world has a sin nature. They are under God's condemnation because they have inherited sin. The wages of sin is death, and judgment is certain. So it doesn't leave a lot of hope. For a child, does it? So the question is, is there anything a parent can do to alleviate the problem of this imputed sin, this sin that's credited to a baby because of Adam's sin, because of the parents? Well, you know, I have to address heresy as we go through this. And if you consider, I'm just going to say the Roman Catholic Church teaches baptismal regeneration. So in, in they're not the only church that teaches this, but they're kind of the biggie, okay? And, you know, just as, uh, to illustrate the point, when we um, first moved to Hamtramck, we started taking care of a little Albanian kid, um, little angel, sweet kid. And um, his mother became pregnant again, and she gave birth to this beautiful girl. And we're like, we want to see the baby. Like, no, we're not bringing the baby out. Well, when can we see it? Well, we're just not going to go anywhere with the baby. Why not? Well, she has to be baptized first. She has to be baptized first before she goes anywhere? Yeah, she's got to be baptized first. Because in their mind, the baptism would remove that inherited Adamic guilt, that condemnation that comes from being a child of Adam. And so the slate is cleaned again, right? So in the Roman Catholic mind, there is original sin, but we're going to baptize the infant right away. That cleans their slate. That way, if they die before the age of accountability, then they're okay. And so I I have written here, the Catholic Church, like the Eastern churches, has always taught that baptism forgives sins, infuses grace, 
and marks one's entrance into the faith. And baptism can be conferred on infants validly. Our Lord said that only the baptized can enter heaven. So in John 3, 5, he says, you know, you must be baptized. You must, you must, uh, must be born again, right? You must be born of water and the spirit. And so they take that to mean that you have to be baptized, water and spirit. That's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying there. And so baptismal regeneration is, is heresy, okay? Because we're not saved by works. There's no work that's going to save us. Baptism is a work. The scriptures clearly teach us that he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're not saved by works. Baptism is a work. I don't have time to address every single aspect of this, but understand this, that we are saved by grace through the work of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what happens, okay, again, what happens if a baby dies before they're baptized? That's the question that you would have to ask somebody from the Roman Catholic background. And they would say that there's limbo. Okay, so if a child, is, if they die before they're baptized, then they don't, they don't go like to the hot hell. They go to limbo. It's kind of an in-between. They, the, they don't get all the fringe benefits of people who are in heaven, but they're not necessarily suffering. They're, they're just kind of in-between. The Catholic Church has softened a little bit on that, okay? I'm sure they've been pressured to soften a little bit on that. And so that's their answer, is limbo. All right, so we have a child who is a gift from God, sovereignly given. Um, Their life has been determined. But the problem is they inherit Adam's guilt, his condemnation. So what do we do? What happens? How do we handle this? Well, though guilty... And corrupt, a state of experiential innocence exists because the infant cannot make moral choices. This is an important point. This is an important fact that I lean on, is I confidently look a parent in the eye, a grieving parent, and say, your child is in heaven with God. Your child is in heaven right now. And this is an important point. They cannot make moral choices. And I think Scripture really, I don't think Scripture is silent on this. They take you to multiple passages where God's word says there are people who are living who can't make moral choices. For instance, Deuteronomy 139. As the nation of Israel is getting ready to enter in uh, to the, the promised land, God's recounting why not everybody's entering into the promised land. It's because they were faithless people. They made wrong choices. But... Among those people, there were little ones who couldn't make a moral choice. They're going into the promised land. Deuteronomy 1.39. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not know yet good from bad, they will enter the land, and I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. Another example in Isaiah chapter 7, this is the, the virgin prophecy. A virgin will give birth to a child. They will call him Emmanuel. And so the writer, Isaiah, is talking about this child, and he's making a prophecy. He's giving a time frame to the king, saying, look, you're safe for this amount of time, the amount of time that it's going to take for this child that was born to the virgin there, this child to know right from wrong. He says, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough, what? To reject wrong and choose right. For before the boy knows enough to reject wrong and choose right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid 
to waste. Right? So King, King Ahaz was having a problem. Isaiah gives him a time frame. The time frame is from when a child comes out of the womb till they can actually make a moral decision. I like Jonah at the end of Jonah. God's dealing with Jonah. He's like, look, you're telling me not to be compassionate on these people? Don't you know that Nineveh, they're, they're little ones who can't make a moral decision? And there's animals too. Those are in the animals, Eileen. Aren't you glad? Yes. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people, okay, who cannot tell their right from their left? Now, in this in this version of the NIV, it makes it sound like there's 120,000 people. It's actually, the, and there are some who cannot tell right from the left. Interesting, in John chapter 9, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees after he's healed this man blind from birth. And the Pharisees are just so hard-hearted. They think they know so much. They think they can see so well, but they're blind spiritually. They're totally blind and they don't know it. And so Jesus says, look, if you were blind, right, if you were in a position where you weren't making moral decisions, if somehow you were innocent because you couldn't make a moral decision, look, you'd be okay. You wouldn't be guilty. But that's not what it is, Pharisees. You guys are making moral decisions. You're rejecting me as the Messiah. You're guilty of sin, he says. 1 Corinthians 14, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to in regard to evil, be like infants, be infantile. And so there exists in those in the womb and those who have just come out of the womb, they are spiritually innocent. They can't make a moral decision. They don't know right from wrong. And so the question becomes, so, so is there an age of accountability, right? That's the big deal, right? Is there an age of accountability, how will I know if my child is making moral choices with an awareness of consequences? Because as you read about this, there is a sense of, okay, do they know the consequences? Because if they do and they're still making this decision to do something they shouldn't do, then that's a big deal. So is there an age of accountability? I'm not arguing for an age of accountability. I'm arguing for a state of experiential innocence. They can't make a decision right for wrong. Now, when do they get to that point? Well, it's interesting um, it seems like in Deuteronomy, and this is, I don't, this is not God's point here. In Deuteronomy, he says, like, okay, everybody 20 years and younger is going into the promised land, actually. Eh, you know, I should say everybody who was 20 when the rebellion occurred, everybody who was 20 or younger is going in. That would be kind of high. Um, some groups would say that the age of accountability is like 12 or 13. I'd say it's a little bit earlier. I had one friend, I was dealing with this, when our kids were little, like, how do you know when the age of accountability is? He said, well, I tell you what, here's how, we, here's how we operate. When our kids get embarrassed because they're naked, that's when we know that they're ashamed. I'm like, that kind of makes sense if you think about what's going on in the garden there. But we don't know. We don't know the age. So we have to understand that they are born in a state of experiential innocence. How long that period lasts, we don't know. But something we do know for sure is this, is that judgment as scripture is always based on deeds, not guilt inherited from Adam. Judgment is always based on deeds. Always. And scripture is, is so clear about this, right? Old Testament, Jeremiah. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person, what? According to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. 
Jesus says, I'm coming back. This is after he declares, after Peter says he's the Messiah. And Jesus kind of gives a glimpse of the future. He says, look, I'm coming back with the angels, and I'm going to reward every person according to what they have done, their deeds. We know at the end, Revelation chapter 20, this great white throne judgment. And I saw all the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Judgment is not based on the fact that a person has inherited Adamic guilt. It's based on deeds. So you can see where I'm going here. Children in the womb, children out of the womb, they are in a state of experiential innocence. Now, whenever I use the word innocent and I start talking about people who won't fall under God's condemnation, people are like, well, what about the innocent person over in Africa who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? You mean they get a pass too, right? Because they didn't hear the good news. Paul's point in Romans chapter 1 and 2 is to say that every human being alive is justly under God's condemnation because they have rejected God in unthankfulness. They have turned in idolatry, worshiping the created thing and not the creator. He's so clear in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, that there is no person after that state of experiential innocence, there's no person who's gone past that state who is morally innocent. Because every person alive has chosen to rebel against God. They may not hear the gospel but their condemnation is sealed because they have rejected God. I don't have time to work through all the ins and outs of that. I could take you through the whole book of Romans and show you clearly how Paul is making that point. But back to this point, judgment is always based on deeds. Always. Another truth, salvation is by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. Salvation has always been by faith. Right? We see this in familiar passages like Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. You see, the salvation is a gift, but really what's in view here is the fact that the faith is a gift. But that's another point. It's not by works. It's not by baptismal regeneration. No. Nobody's going to boast. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, right? And Sam has so clearly taught us that faith involves the ability to take in information, content, teaching, truth claims. It's called essentia. And then there has to be, I mean, there has, it's called notitia. And then secondly, essentia. It's you have to assent to that truth. Like I take in the truth, I say that truth is true, and then I trust in it. Friends, a baby in the womb, an infant who cannot make a moral choice, cannot understand that. They cannot exercise faith as described in Scripture. So, if a child is born in sin, judgment is certain, the wages of sin is death, okay, if, if that's the case, and salvation is only possible through faith, then what do we do? What do we do? Well, let's Let's see what we do. So, let's just recap. First of all, we've seen that God is sovereign. 
right? Children are a gift from the Lord. Life begins at conception. So that means that in the womb, in the womb. So the case that I'm making for infants that will be heaven is every single infant that has ever been miscarried, every single infant uh, who was aborted, every single infant that happened to die in the womb, every infant perinatal, every infant that has died, it's life. Life begins at conception. All created in the image of God. Each one, their steps have been determined by God before yet one of them was taken. Children are born with original sin. There exists in the life of every person a period of experiential innocence. So there'll be plenty of, of people who live uh, you know, over in Yemen, plenty of little bitty babies who never, never made a moral decision, and they live in a family whose parents are re- clearly rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but those little infants will one day be worshiping around the throne of Jesus because of the grace of God and his mercy. Because they have been created in a state of experiential innocence. Six, judgment is always, always based on deeds. Always based on deeds. And seventh, salvation is always by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So as we consider these truths here, and you look at the world as it is, there's basically three groups, all right? The big group would be those rejecting God, those rejecting Jesus Christ, right? The way is broad that leads to destruction. Jesus is asked, are there only a few people that are entered the kev- in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, yeah, the, the, the way is narrow that leads to eternal life. There's few people that find it. But broad is the road that leads to destruction. There's this huge group of people who have rejected God, have rejected Jesus Christ. They have died in their sin. And then we have a smaller group of those that are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And in this group, of course, you'd, you'd, you'd include the Old Testament saints, okay? And then we have another group, a third group, those who die in a state of experiential innocence, right? So you've got this whole group of, of children who could never exercise faith in God. They're a separate group. What do you do with that group? How do we get that group into heaven if they can't exercise faith and salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone? How do you get them into heaven? Well, let me offer some options. Let me offer some options for this group here, the group with original sin, experiential innocence, unable to exercise faith. Now, the first option would be the Pelagian option. Babies are born without Adamic guilt. They have no sin where they're born. And so if that's the case, then when they die, they'll, they'll go to heaven. That's one option, but that's heresy, right? Because Romans 5 clearly contraindicates that, or, or contradicts that. Second would be infant baptism, right? So the Roman Catholic view is that baptism actually saves somebody, and, and so if we baptize these infants, infants, their slate gets clean and they're okay until they can start participating in the Eucharist and having that grace infused on a regular basis. I reject both of those options. Another option is the option of election. This, to me, is the worst one. I have a hard time dealing with this. That, that you know, of those unborn infants who died and those infants who have died, those in the moral state of innocence, and, and I haven't even talked about all those people who are born and they live into adulthood that can't make a moral decision. Like somebody with severe Down syndrome, 
or some kind of cognitive delay that they can't make a, a faith decision. And some people are so strong in election. No, God determines who's going to be saved. Okay, God chooses, God elects, I get that. But he uses faith in the process. God elects. And so if God chooses for that baby to be in heaven, then you have some elect babies and some, some unelect babies. And to me, that's a bad option. Very bad option. One commentator, R.A. Webb, says this. He says, If a dead infant was, were, were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, being not elect, there would be a good reason to the divine mind for the judgment because sin is a reality, right? The baby, there's sin that's been imputed from it. He says, okay, I get that, but hold on. But the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. Under such circumstances, it would know suffering, but it would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. It could not tell itself why it was so awfully smitten, and consequently the whole meaning and the significance of its sufferings being to it a conscious enigma. The very essence of the penalty would be absent, and justice would be disappointed, cheated of its validation. It's just, he's saying, look, it just wouldn't make sense on a very practical level. You have an unelect infant suffering in hell. Why am I suffering? I didn't do anything right or wrong. I'm just suffering. So logically, that doesn't make sense. And I don't think scripturally it makes sense either. And then there's the agnostic position. I don't know. I don't know. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That's truth. I get that. That is truth. Amen to that, right? God always does right. But what you've done is you say you, you, you have validated the character of God and that he always does right. What does right mean for my baby, that baby that I held and loved and is now away from me? So I don't think agnosticism is a good answer. I think God has given us enough information in Scripture that we can make a good Truth statement that gives hope and comforts those who are mourning. And so the point that I take is this. The hope is this, a unilateral work of God's grace as the Holy Spirit applies the merits of Christ's sacrificial death and victorious resurrection to the experientially innocent infant causing regeneration. It's God's grace. Friends, salvation is all of grace for all of us. All of us. Grace, it's all grace. Your faith is an act of grace on God's part. The very fact that you can exercise faith is because God graciously removed the blinders from your eyes. He quickened your intellect so that you could receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that you could make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Apart from God's grace, you wouldn't do that. So it's all grace. And so really, when we look at the salvation of infants, it's just God's work of salvation in the end. Right, Titus 3, I'm going to back here again. I'm winding up, guys. You're good. Almost there. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through what? The washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. Paul's validating that. Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. See, Jesus is still the agent of salvation. So that having been justified by his grace, declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. It's all God's grace. Again, the passage from John, you must be born again. 
How are we born again? It's a work of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind. Verse 8, he blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The work of God's Spirit is something that we can't understand. It's a mystery to us. We can't see it happening, but God's Spirit works. He causes regeneration in dead hearts. So salvation has always been by grace, through faith. It's always a unilateral, uh, unilateral work of God. And so just to validate this wise, wise words of comfort, listen. The destiny of infants who died is determined irrespective of their choice by an unconditional decree of God suspended for its execution on no act of their own. And their salvation is wrought by an unconditional application of the grace of Christ to their souls through the immediate and irresistible operation of the Holy Spirit prior to and apart from any action of their own personal wills. And if death in infancy does not depend on God's providence... I'm sorry, if death in infancy does depend on God's providence, it is assuredly God and his providence who selects this vast multitude to be made participants in his unconditional salvation. This is but to say that they are unconditionally predestined to salvation from the foundation of the world. So the position that I'm offering here is that every unborn infant, born infant, who dies in an experiential state of innocence, they are of the elect. They are in heaven. That is the position that I take. And that's the hope that I give. And this is B.B. Warfield. He's an old Princeton scholar. But even John, John Piper, I'm not going to go through another quote, but John Piper, you have, to, you have to look hard to find anybody who, would, anybody who is a theologian uh, who would say of, of a Protestant background, who would say that infants don't go to heaven. But lastly, we have the confidence of King David. And I think this is important for us. We need an illustration of hope. So you know the story of King David. King David had an affair with Bathsheba, and she became pregnant. And David essentially had Bathsheba's husband murdered. He takes Bathsheba into his house. She goes full term, and when she gives birth, the child dies. And David is mourning over the death of this child. He's fasting and he's praying and he won't eat anything. And his, the guys around David are like, this is not good, he's not eating. All he's doing is praying, he's mourning. And it's like, he, he's going to get sick if he doesn't eat. They're worried about him. And so, I'm sorry, the baby was, forgive me, I got sore. The baby was alive. David was praying that the, the baby wouldn't die. All right, so let me back up. I, so the baby's born, the baby's sick. They think the baby's going to die. David's praying, praying, fasting, praying, and then the baby finally dies. And this is David's response. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let this child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? No, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So the hope that David had was not that you know, that God was going to somehow resurrect this child that had passed, something like what happened, you know, the church out in California that was praying for this child to be resurrected. Now David says, look, the child's not going to come back. Now that I know the child's dead, I'm going, to, I'm going to go to the child. I will see the child again. The child's in heaven, David is saying. 
And so David had that confidence. And I think we can have that confidence. And I don't think it's the confidence of we're not really sure. I think we can look at the scripture. We can see the state of human beings. We can see this experiential innocence. We can see that salvation has always been of Christ by grace through faith. And we can have confidence in God's work. So any person who dies in a state of experiential innocence, infant or otherwise, will be in heaven, blessed forever in their death. The other, I think the thing that comes up as I finally close is, you know, my child's in heaven, what are they like? Well, I recognize my child. And first of all, heaven is better than we can ever imagine. Heaven is greater than we can ever imagine. Heaven is beyond our wildest imaginations. So if heaven is always going to be better than what we think, then the fact that we're worried that we may not recognize a child when we get to heaven, I think it's taken care of by God if it's going to be better. And so will we recognize the child? I believe so. In God's providence and the way he works, we will recognize the child. What's their life like now? Better than ours here. Never a selfish desire, never a useless word, never an unkind deed, never a sinful thought, no suffering, no sorrow, no pain, no persecution, no division, no disunity, no hate, no quarrels, no disagreements, free of disappointments, perfect comfort, perfect pleasure, perfect knowledge, perfect love, perfect joy. That is the existence of an infant that goes to heaven. Does that make sorrow and mourning easier all the time? Not always. But it gives us hope, right? That the loved one, the little child that we lost, we'll see them one day when we enter into heaven. The question is, is are you going to be in heaven, really? That's the question we need to land on. Will you be in heaven? Have you embraced by faith Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Because if you haven't, there's no second chance. There's no, there's no gimme. There's no mulligan. It's... You get one chance. My prayer for you is that you would come in faith to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a song, I Run to Christ. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for uh, the hope that we can have from Scripture uh, that um, is true. It's not false hope. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for those who may have lost little ones, those who have miscarried, those um, who are helping somebody go through something like this. I pray that this will give hope and encouragement to hurting hearts, knowing um, that the little one is safe in the arms of God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you would stand, we'll sing together.